welcome back. So this episode is all about language, specifically the structure of language and then language acquisition. So we'll break it up into two big parts. Before we get to language structure, <coughs> in the presentation, we um, watched the first five minutes of the language crash course. And it's something to consider if you feel like you need that extra source. The first half of that language crash, crash course is very, very beneficial to rewatch. Um, just something, you know, food for thought to keep in the back of your mind. Um, but before I dive into the actual structure of language, the people who study language are known as psycholinguists. Um, and <coughs> what this is, is the study of the psychological and neurobiological factors that enable humans to not only produce language, but also acquire, use, and even um, comprehend language. Um, some background about communication and language. The actual ability to communicate is one of the most significant advances in our world's history. Um, first, humans would have a spoken language, and then over generations and generations, there was a written language. <coughs> written languages is, or a written language, sorry, is one of the characteristics of civilization. Um, and it is that ability to transmit information to uh, future generations. A quick review of parts of the brain. Remember, everything psychological is also biological. We're never forgetting biology, ever. Um, two parts of the brain that are quite significant within language. We have Broca's area and Wernicke's area. With Broca's area, that's all about language production, the actual production of speech. It's located in our left frontal lobe. Um, the actual... It, it, it's in charge of like the actual muscles used to speak. Whereas Wernicke's um, area is all about the reception of language or in other words, um, language comprehension. It's located in the left temporal lobe. If it's damaged, let's say you have Wernicke's aphasia. Um, you could also have Broca's aphasia. That would be, you know, there's some issue within that area, potentially a brain lesion or something else going on. But Wernicke's area, specifically if there's Wernicke's or Wernicke's aphasia, uh, your speaking is generally okay, but it's in a, in a sense meaningless. Um, it lacks meaning um, and people can't comprehend. Okay, so to break down language structure, there are two basic elements. We have words and then the actual structure of language. Um, <coughs> when we think of words, I want you to think of ways to produce language symbolically. And words can be verbal, they can be written, but also signed. Um, whereas structure are the rules. Um, that's how language is put together. So we have grammar and then syntax and semantics. Um, breaking down words, there's also the structure of words. We have phonemes and morphemes. Um, I'm going to go over some examples of being able to detect, okay, how many morphemes are in this word versus phonemes. A phoneme is the smallest, most distinct sound unit 
in a language. It's a basic unit of speech. And some students think, oh, it's just a letter. That's not always the case. Um, it's a sound. So think anything with TH. Um, that TH, the sound is um, a phoneme, but there are two letters there. That's okay. Um, an example would be bat, okay? Bat has three phonemes. Why? You have b, a, t, so three phonemes. Chat also has three. Why? The ch sound. It's a sound. You don't do k, h, you do ch, and that's a distinct sound unit. So we have ch, at as again three phonemes within the word chat then we go a little larger and that's a morpheme and it's not morphine like the drug it's morpheme there's an m there um two m's in that word <coughs> morpheme is the smallest unit of language with a meaning usually morphemes are two or more phonemes okay it's not like they're words, but it's the meaning within a word. And it's significant because morphemes also include like uh, prefixes and suffixes. Okay, um, for my curious students, in English we have approximately 45 phonemes, but it also varies on accent, which is pretty significant. Um, we have about 20 vowels and 24 consonant phonemes. Whereas, again, with morphemes, it's usually two or more phonemes. It's not the same as a word. Words can contain several morphemes. That's okay. They're not words, but they still convey meaning. Morphemes are all about the meaning within the word. <coughs> all right, so let's do the word undesirables, and I want you to focus on morphemes. So some practice that you could do is pause and then figure out, determine how many morphemes does undesirables have? All right, so what it is, it has four morphemes. Why? We have un, desire, able, and s. And the reason why s is a morpheme here is because it still has meaning. Why? It makes the word plural, okay? S in some cases has meaning, especially if it's making that word plural. Each one, again, adds to the word's, me word's meaning. All right, let's do thinking, okay? How many phonemes for thinking? It's six. Why? We have th, i, n, k, i, ng, okay? You don't, you know, the th is one phoneme. Remember, phonemes are a basic sound bite. It's like a sound unit or sound bite. And then with morphemes for thinking, there are two. Why? We have the word think and then the ing at the end. Um, the reason why ink is not um, a morpheme there, just I-N-K, is because although ink is an actual word, it doesn't contain any meaning within the word thinking. Okay, you have to think in terms of, you have to think in terms of the word thinking. All right. Um, let's do a couple more. So we have through. How many phonemes does through have? It has three. Why? We have th, er, oo, okay? That's one sound. Whereas morphemes, there's just one, through, okay? Not, you can't really break down that word anymore in terms of the meaning within that word. It just is a single morpheme and that is okay.
All right, the last one, dogs. There are four phonemes for dogs. Why? We have d, a, g, s. And then for morphemes, there are two. All right, we have dog and then s. Again, s at the end of dog makes it plural. That contains meaning. Now, in terms of compound words, they would be considered having two morphemes. <coughs> Some examples would be a screwdriver, a rainbow, a baseball. All right, let's get into the other part of language structure, which is grammar. Um, grammar as a whole is just the system of rules governing language. Um, we're gonna break down grammar into two parts, semantics and syntax. Why is it, why is part, or why are parts of grammar important? It enables us to communicate and understand each other. Okay, so to break down the first part of grammar, which is semantics. Semantics is all about the meaning of words, phrases, or sentences. And a way to remember this is think back to a way to encode information effortfully. Semantic encoding making meaning out of an abstract concept or a novel term or a new term that we already kind of know what semantic means. Um, now, granted, there's also a form of long-term memories, which is a semantic memory. And of course, that's facts and information. And yes, psychology is complicated, of course, um, but something to kind of hold on to with the semantics within a sentence is, well, does that sentence actually make sense? Um, semantics tells us to add ed to laugh, and that makes it past tense. On the other side, we have syntax. And this, a syntax is a set of rules for combining words into grammatically sensible sentences. The big thing here is, does the sentence make sense? And it's in terms of word order. Um, and we'll go over some examples of sentences with bad semantics and good syntax and vice versa. Um, the kind of interesting thing about syntax, if you ever go into like take a linguistic class or go, become a psycholinguist and study uh, language, is syntax is not set in stone. Things that weren't acceptable years ago now are. And an example is ending a sentence in a preposition. I try not to do that because as a child, when I was learned, and this was back in elementary school, I had particular teachers really drill this into our brains as we were learning grammar and sentence structure. And it was, the teachers would be like, never, ever, ever end a sentence in a preposition. Now, syntax rules, you know, they're flexible. They change, they evolve. Um, it's not the worst thing ever to end a sentence in um, a preposition. <coughs> syntax also varies from language to language. Some examples, um, English adjectives are generally go before the noun, whereas in French and Spanish, they generally go after the noun. Um, so in other words, think semantics, the overall meaning versus syntax, does the sentence make sense? In other words, are the words in the right order? Syntax is all about word order. So some examples of bad syntax, think word order here. There is a bottle of milk on the table that belongs in the refrigerator. The issue here is we don't really know if the milk or the table 
actually belong in the refrigerator. That sentence is very unclear. There needs to be a shift in the word order. Versus another example of bad syntax, snows, sudden floods, melting cause. What? You know, you, you can't really make sense of it. Um, the actual word order is very, very bizarre. Um, syntax and making sense of a sentence. Syntax allows for the sentence, they are hunting dogs. It makes sense. But depending on the context, semantics, the overall meaning of the sentence will tell us, well, what does it actually mean? Are, is that sentence referencing they are dogs that hunt or they were hunting for dogs? Okay, depending on the overall context, we can decipher the semantics. Um, but syntax allows for you to be able to say they are hunting dogs. All right, so some an interesting sentence that actually was um, established, I guess you could say, by a linguist, and we're going to talk about him in a minute, um, Noam Chomsky. You can just refer to him as Chomsky. He is going to... Um, go into pretty, you know, intense detail about grammar, semantics, and um, syntax. And what he comes up with is this sentence, colorless green ideas sleep furiously. This sentence has correct syntax. The grammar rules are okay here. The word order is okay. However, it's incorrect semantically. What on earth is going on here? Um, you know, you can have correct sentences with, or sentences with correct syntax, but the actual semantics have, you don't, you cannot make meaning out of that sentence and that's okay, but it's a significant kind of evolution in understanding, well, what is the difference between syntax and semantics? Um, an example of a sentence that is correct semantically but has incorrect syntax would be, I yogurt breakfast ate for. You can kind of decipher what that sentence means. You ate yogurt for breakfast, but the actual structure of that sentence, it, it, the word order is, ooh, it's yikes. Um, you need to read, you know, change up the words. All right, I'm going to take a pause here and then get into the second half of today or this episode. All right, so the second bit of this presentation is all about how do we acquire language or language acquisition. Um, so there's kind of a debate about language in, well, what is the purpose of language? Um, if you all remember William James, um, you all need to remember him, uh, the first American psychologist, he is a functionalist and he believes human traits evolve because they perform a specific function. Um, he was really um, interested in trying to understand, well, what are the functions of parts of the brain? Not just the structure, but what do they do? So the, the question is, you know, what if the purpose of language is not simply to communicate? And instead, it is like, or it is to act like a structure or even scaffolding for thoughts to grow around. Um, and the significant thing with this question that I'm posing is, do, does language influence our thinking or does thinking influence language? And there's kind of a debate within that question. And we'll talk about, you know, the different stances here. However, 
We are pretty dang sure that babies have thoughts before they have speech. And what if learning language actually allows them to have more complex thoughts? And some last question, or a last question I'm gonna pose is, can you actually think without words? Um, so let's get into primary language acquisition. And I'm gonna talk about a theory involving the nurture side of the nature-nurture debate. So again, when we think of nature versus nurture, nurture would argue, you know, you develop thoughts, feelings, behaviors through experience over time. So two significant people involved with one of these theories of language acquisition regarding a nurture stance, um, they are Edward Sapir and Benjamin Worf. You do need to be pretty familiar with these names. Of course, we keep on adding names. Um, what they came up with is a hypothesis, of course, called Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. And I'm going to bring in two other important terms that we're going to stick under their bubble. But what they go into detail about is that the language we are born in actually shapes and determines the kinds of thoughts we think. Um, sometimes words don't really translate well into different languages. An example is this word, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, so please donate me here. I believe it's called wabi-sabi, which I know we don't know that unless you speak Japanese, but wabi-sabi is a Japanese word that means finding beauty in imperfections. We don't have that thought in English, so it makes that translation a little clunky. Um, and for those of you in language classes right now, like, a secondary language class like Spanish, um, French, Chinese even, I'm sure you're coming to realize like there are some words in Spanish that don't translate perfectly well in English. So that connects to the, another term that Sapir and Warp study and it's called linguistic determinism. In other words, the language you were raised in or born in determines the thoughts that, you were, that you're going to have. Think linguistic as language and then determinism. You can see part of that word is all about determination. Um, the language determines thoughts. Um, then they also come up with another word, of course, making it complicated, and it's called linguistic relativism. Um, and what happens here is that the thoughts can be altered if a person learns to speak a new language and even think in that language, which is wild to think about. I am not fluent in a second language, so I have absolutely no idea how this would happen. Some of you, however, do speak more than one language, potentially like more than two. Um, and it's I am fascinated always when I talk with students and people who are fluent in more than one language and they're like, no, this, this does happen. Um, it's pretty wild and I'm kind of jealous. Now, another important language acquisition theory is on the nature side of the debate. Um, and the important part with this is that this nature theory argues that language development or language acquisition is an unconscious process. Think about infants here. Um, they're not consciously aware of learning how to speak or how to apply grammar rules. It simply just happens. 
However, it happens through a pretty, 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 really complicated neural process with all those neural connections forming in your brain. Um, the guy who studies this in detail, we've already mentioned him, but his name is Noam Chomsky. He's important. Um, he's going to come up with this thing called the language acquisition device. You may also see it referenced as LAD, but for the most part, the first time you see it in like a multiple choice question or even in FRQ, they'll spell the whole thing out. Um, but what he says is that humans will learn language or develop their own. Um, in other words, they're predetermined. We are predetermined to learn language and grammar rules. Think nature, okay? It's in our, it's in our genes. It's in our DNA. Um, Deaf babies, which is very fascinating, will babble sounds that they have never ever heard, which is fascinating. We're going to talk about what babble means in a moment. It is an important psych term. I know it's weird. Um, and so, yeah, he is, he's saying, you know, the reason why, again, it's, it's kind of in our DNA, our genes, learning language. And why? Well, we have this innate or inborn language acquisition device that allows us to kind of just unconsciously, automatically acquire language. Okay, so now I'm going to get into some stages of language acquisition. The important thing here is to be fairly familiar with the order. So if I said, you know, what's one of the earlier stages, you should be pretty comfortable with saying, okay, it's these three. Um, and also recognizing that within this order, we're going from the simplest way of kind of acquiring language to a more, you know, complex way. So the first stage, it's not really a fun one, but it's called eye contact. Um, think when you're an infant or when uh, someone is an infant. Um, eye contact, which is interesting to think about. I don't think anyone has really thought about this. Maybe, maybe not. Um, it is part of communication and language. And to be honest, I'm kind of experiencing it a lot this year. And I imagine you are all too, because we don't all see each other. And the fact that we don't see each other can impact um, our communication and language. It doesn't impact us super negatively, but for me at least, I can recognize that there is, there's a shift there with the, my communication to my students. Um, it's not a horrible thing, it's our reality right now and it is what it is, but it's just some, an observation that I've had. Um, however, when we think of infants with eye contact, the reason why it's so important, it shows intent or connectedness. Um, if you think about the bond the baby has with the mother, a lot of it is due to the eye contact. Not all, but a lot of it is. <laughs> the next early, early stage is babbling. Um, babbling happens kind of when you get into, I don't know, a few months old to around 10-ish months-ish, up to a year-ish. Again, we're using ish here because it, it really varies. Um, when we think of babbling, think um, it's producing a lot of vowel sounds. Um, in other words, before 10 months, when the baby is in this babbling stage, they're able to read lips and also discriminate and produce literally any possible phoneme, which is wild to think about. Um, all children babble. 
However, at about 10 months, there's a shift within what the baby is allowed to babble. And when we think babbling, think da, 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 they're cooing, ba, ba, ba. Um, for those of you who have like really young siblings or, you know, you babysit infants, babies, you might be pretty familiar with this babbling. Um, at about 10 months, however, the babble resembles the household speech. So this is pretty significant where at around 10 months, the baby is still in this babbling stage. However, they lose the ability to actually produce phonemes that aren't found in their native language, which is significant when that baby or eventually adult or, you know, young adult tries to then learn a new language. Think about, you know, for a lot of us, we, let's say English has always been the home language. We haven't spoken or been exposed to other languages. We go to middle school and we start taking a Spanish class. For a lot of us, it's really hard to roll our R's. Um, that's because doing that is a phoneme. Um, and if we haven't been exposed to it prior to 10 months, we do, in fact, lose that ability. Now, Side note, you can teach yourself to roll your R's. I did, um, but it took a while for me to do that. <coughs> the next stage is the one word stage. This lasts around one to two years. Um, what's important within this stage is the word holophrase or holophrastic speech. Um, the important thing here with one word and the reason why it's called holophrase or holophrastic speech is because babies can produce one word, but that one word does in fact lead to a complete thought. Think of juice. Juice with the hands moving, pointing, that is a thought. The baby or one-year-old wants juice. Um, What's pretty cool is at about 18 months or around a year and a half, this their language acquisition explodes, going from a word a week to then even a word a day, which is so fascinating. So um, some other words of holophrastic speech include play, so that, you know, one-year-old wants to play with them, um, go, let's go ride in the car, sushi, it's supposed to be silly, let us open a sushi restaurant in the city that offers fresh fish at a reasonable price and offers a great value to the consumer. All right, that's what sushi means for a one-year-old. <coughs> the next stage is two-word, also called telegraphic speech. This happens around two years of age, where you probably guessed it, the toddler then speaks in two-word phrases. So instead of saying juice, now the baby or the two-year-old might say juice spill. Um, the, this child is beginning to understand grammar. Um, where this noun comes before the verb in the case of English. Um, some other examples could be go now, pet dog, play ball, eat cookie, invade Europe. All right, what's super fascinating though is this other term and it's called fast mapping. This is a very, like, and, and I know this sounds silly, but it's very magical and it happens unconsciously where toddlers begin to use context and what they heard others say to learn the meaning of new words. And it happens very, very fast, and it's an incredible thing that happens within language. Then at the end of year two, <coughs> potentially when this baby or toddler is still in their two-word stage or the telegraphic speech stage, there is this thing called overgeneralization. 
what this is is misapplying grammar rules um, and it can happen you know past this two-word stage so an example could be mommy I runned really fast okay that word runned is of course not grammatically correct in that sentence um, there needs to be a change another example would be using ed for the past tense in all case it braked it broke I eated I goad okay most likely that baby isn't actually hearing that however from the one rule that they remembered in grammar about oh you add ed Again, this isn't like a super, super conscious thing, um, but because they're using ED in some cases, they end up overgeneralizing it and using it in all cases of past tense words, um, which is very fascinating. The last thing is this critical period, otherwise known as the critical period hypothesis. Basically, this happens around seven and it closes around seven. So <coughs> this is this window in time when a child must learn something specifically for language. After which, so beyond seven, the plasticity within our brains about language acquisition for a second language, a third language, our first language even, is severely um, limited. So in other words, this means that it is really, really tough to be fluent in a second language if you're learning past this critical period. Um, think about it for all of us, a lot of us, not all, but I will never ever be fluent in um, Spanish even though I took it for years and years and years, but because it was after my critical period, that learning window has closed. The neural connections, even though they'll form, they won't be as strong as the other neural connections for my primary language. Um, so in other words, when you think of language development, a, a kind of potentially helpful way is acquiring language is all about maturation. We're maturing, it's a process. Um, and like language structure, how we develop language goes from the most simple to the most complex. And to kind of close, there's some uh, random things on the slides that I'm not necessarily going to talk through, but just something significant to think about is thinking in language. What comes first? Do ideas come first and words follow or are thoughts conceived in words and you can't really conceive of them without words. Um, it, and what we like to say is, you know what, they're intertwined. That nature and nurture debate, the, the two theories with the language acquisition device and linguistic determination or the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, it, it's a little bit of both. Language determines thinking is kind of too strong of a statement. Um, but language does influence thinking. Um, it's not just a vehicle for thought. It does help us think too. Um, so just some things to think about and that'll be it for language. It's a pretty short bit of this unit. Mm -hmm.